0: at Let's get started.
1: Well, we're diving into the Psalms this summer. What's on your playlist is the question we're asking because we want to kind of build a playlist this summer. Maybe you have some of your own favorite Psalms you can already think of as you think about what that might be. I'd be interested to know. Or maybe you're newer to the Bible, maybe maybe creating a playlist of Psalms is something fresh for you. And so discovering even this summer, some of the Psalms together that might inspire you or encourage you is a way of creating a little bit of a playlist. The truth is we're drawing from a big playlist, 150 songs that have stood the test of time. They've been the prayer book, the praise book of God's people, literally for thousands of Of years. And so we're coming to these Psalms uh, standing in a wonderful storied tradition of people taking these very words and expressing them, a way of expressing their hearts, their minds, their lives to the God who made them. We already introduced today's Psalm, Psalm 8, and that's where we're going to go today. And so I invite you, if you have a Bible in your Uh, hand, paper, or on your phone, go ahead and look it up. Uh, Those of you who are gathering with us online, there's a tab actually on the right that says Bible on it. You can click on that, but you might have access to something else. But let's get in to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, you already heard it. It is bookended with praise. Begins and ends exactly the same way. And you memorization geniuses probably already have it memorized, right? Lord... Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Woo! I knew I was surrounded by geniuses, and with that we're immediately drawn into worship. You begin this psalm and you're immediately drawn into the worship of the Lord, Yahweh, the Creator who is glorious and awesome over all creation, over all the earth. And we're expressing that immediately as we enter into Psalm 8. And that's not a coincidence because worshiping the creator God is central to our identity as his human images. He created us to reflect back to him creation's praise. We see that all through the scriptures. We're gonna see that right here in Psalm 8. But I think it's cool that before there's any commentary, before there's any, you know, you, know, uh, you know, insight brought, we're just immediately entering into worship from the moment we begin this psalm. And then at the conclusion, at the end, it forms kind of an envelope, a, a bookend. It's a literary sandwich for us to enjoy that begins and ends with praise. Because our lives begin and end with praise. We were created for worship. And so together we say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now the poet goes on, of course, to say, you have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I love that. The God that we worship, is the God who, yes, created the heavens and the earth. And his majesty is on display wherever we look. The psalmist here particularly seems looking, he's looking upwards, right? And we see that in other psalms, but we also see in other psalms where he's looking uh, to other places as well. But in this psalm, there seems to be an orientation to look up, look up at the heavens and to see God's glory on display, but also to acknowledge how the worship from even a child, a babbling infant, a a nursing child, how even there God establishes a stronghold against those who would destroy his people and his creation. Worshiping Yahweh, the creator, is an innate human response that we see here, that we feel within us. Praise and worship are special to God, because they indicate a kind of rightness of response that when something is seen, something beautiful, something good, that there's immediately a response to give praise to the one who created it, the one who is good. That to be human is to worship. That we were created to give glory to the creator who is worthy of our adoration, worthy of our praise. I was discussing with a friend a few days ago about why the gathered community of God's people is important. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but one of them is this. He is worthy of our worship, period. That God actually is worthy of our gathered adoration, of the intentionality we bring by carving out moments where we would gather together and in unified voice and spirit and song and mind, we would actually give focused praise to the God who created the world and created us. And to simply say, he's worthy of that. He's worth it. You're worth it, God. That we don't just need to just sort of shrug it off or whatever, but there's something special, something powerful, about when God's people are unified in praise and worship to their God. And not only us gathered here, but recognizing that by the Holy Spirit, we are unified together with other brothers and sisters gathering here in the Creston Valley, but gathering all through the time zones all around the world, particularly on this day, to give praise to the creator. That's something beautiful in there, isn't there? you're joining by the Spirit the song of literally millions upon millions of brothers and sisters giving praise to God and he's worthy of it. Ah, That was a side note. I don't think that's what Psalm 8's about, but you know. Because actually, here's where it begins to get interesting. We see how Psalm 8, how, how the worship of the true God leads the psalmist and leads us to wonder then at God's care For us, these are super famous lines, and they sit kind of at the heart of this psalm. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This is a powerful question. And we feel it, don't we? Do you feel it? Maybe you remember standing under the Northern Lights. Anyone? Wow, when they're dancing, as long as you put it out of your mind, that it's probably some radioactive leftover from the atom bombs in Nevada (laughs) in the 1950s. My dad just kind of ruined the Northern Lights for me there, but nonetheless, you stand watching the dancing Aurora Borealis and you think, wow! Or maybe gazing up at any starlit sky or observing it. I love the conjunctions when there's a conjunction between something. You know, oh, Mars and Jupiter and the moon are lined up. I mean, they're not really lined up, but they're lined up to us. And it's really cool to see. Or tracing our fingers over Orion or the Big Dipper or pointing out the North Star or watching Jupiter and picking out its moons, you know, maybe with binoculars, but just gazing up with complete wonder. And people have been doing that for centuries and centuries. I don't think there's a human alive who hasn't looked up and felt some kind of awe at what they saw. But it's the follow up question to that wonder that really stands out. You see, the psalmist, he's in awe, but he doesn't just kind of stand and gawk. He actually reflects on something very particular and very personal. Seeing all that Yahweh has done, the moon, the stars, he immediately wonders at God's care for humans. Think about that question. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? This is actually, we've heard it, especially those of you who've heard this psalm a lot, it just seems like a seamless transition from looking at the sky and then thinking about God's care for you because you, well, you you know the story. But this is not a natural movement for most people who looked up at the stars. You see, this question isn't just sort of a general philosophical question about who, what does it mean to be a human being in light of this infinite, you know, stars before me? That's not what's going on here. It's a more specific question than that. And there's actually some deep assumptions at play, even as he asks the question. You see, this question can only be asked by someone who's already part of a larger story, who already believes and worships a God, who not only created the heavens and the humans, but entered into a relationship with those very humans in some very clear ways. See what I mean? If he didn't have that as a background assumption, he wouldn't be wondering at God's care, not specifically, and certainly not where he goes in the rest of the psalm. He might be in awe of what he sees. He might even be lifted to some kind of worship, but he wouldn't then be wondering about God's care if he didn't have some story to back it up. Other people looking up at the heavens during this time period did not look at the moon and stars and say, wow, God, you made all of this. And yet you care for me. That is not what they said. They looked up at it and they thought there are powers at work here that I do not understand. I better appease them or they might strike me dead. I'm not saying they didn't have some sort of awe, but their sense of what was going on here was not that kind of warm fuzzy. Oh, there's a God who cares for me. That's not what they were feeling. And we see that because... Ancient paganism is riddled with worship to, well, a lot of things, but certainly to stars, star gods from Anu to Artemis to Zeus and beyond. There's a sense in which those bodies in the heavens are, are ruling over us and we better make sure they're happy so that all these things don't happen to us. That's the kind of response that would often happen. The worship impulse that's woven deep within humanity would often misfire in some way into a fearful idolatry. But here, this poet, when he looks up at the heavens, he interprets it through a story that he's already part of. A revelation story that includes God's creation and God's care. The story of God's people. And it leads him to wonder at creation, yes, but to worship the creator and then wonder again how it is that this creator would actually care for people like us. It's a great place to be, isn't it? I mean, it's a great place to be if you're a person who has a sense that God loves you, has acted on your behalf through Jesus. And I know many of you to wander through God's wonderful creation, to look well and close with intention and appreciation, to marvel at the creative power and the love of diversity that God clearly has, the intricacy and the woven designs in this incredible world, and to pause all throughout and say, wow, God, wow. I mean, don't you love that stuff? To look at what God has made and then be able to say, and yet, you know all this, you did all this, you understand all this, and yet, you love me. And and yet, you care for me. And yet, you became one of your own creatures. Wow. Wow. You're here with me right now. This is astonishing stuff. And I think that's, again, we we, we come to the start and the end. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the God who created the world, who's intimately involved in my life, who who has acted on our behalf and is connecting with us. This is a beautiful expression of faith and adoration as we consider the world around us. Wonder and worship, when the story is there, then becomes an expression of gratitude that we have. And we've all experienced that, and I think, God, I, I know because we've talked about it. But here's where it gets even more interesting. I think, I keep saying that I know, but you see, the psalmist asks, "What's mankind that you're mindful of, and what humans being that you care for them?" And I think we sometimes could stop there and go, "Yeah, you're right. God really does care for me. Like yesterday, I was trying to find a parking spot, and He found one for me. You know, um, yep." Yeah. So sometimes we could maybe. Stop at the word care and sort of have a vague notion of that, God's care for us. And he does. He cares for the intimate details of our lives. I really believe that. But again, the Islamist has something more particular in mind. He's not simply expressing a vague notion of care. You know, God loves me and I'm special. It's actually way deeper than that. It's way more mind-blowing than that. See, he's marveling at God's care for humans because he is seeing how God created humans in relationship with the rest of his creation. He's understanding this care business in terms of actually a revealed understanding of what it means to be a human being. And this isn't just that human beings are loved and cared for and God is mindful of them. That's true. But something even greater Even deeper, Look where he goes. He says, you have made them. He's referring to human beings. What what is mankind that you're mindful of? And what does he mean that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. Remember, you just talked about the works of his fingers setting the stars and moon in place, right? And now he's saying, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. And then he names them. The flocks, the herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Now, what's interesting to me is that it's as though the poet is standing out on a starry night And he's looking up at the moon. And then he's looking down at a scroll. Think of this as a scroll. And he's looking up at the stars. And then he's looking back down at a scroll. by candlelight? I don't know. Moonlight? But he's, he's seeing what's there. But he's looking at what's here. And he's allowing what's here to affect what he's seeing there but also what he's seeing here and what he's seeing about himself. In other words, the scroll that he's holding is the interpretive lens through which he's understanding even the moon and the stars, but also himself and his, our place in creation. And what's the scroll he's looking at? What's he holding in his hand? Anyone? It's, I, I'll give you a hint. I don't just mean the Bible. I mean specifically. What's he looking at as he looks up at these moon and stars? What's he, what's, what's he, what's he looking down here? Uh, what's, he, what's he reading? Anyone? Yeah, Genesis? Genesis 1? Yeah, that part. The part you heard already, right? Genesis 1, and on, right? It's those opening verses where human beings created male and female in the image of God are given responsibility to rule in God's name over the land as God's covenant stewards. So I want you to imagine it, standing on that hillside, gazing up at the stars with this story in your heart, in your mind, in your hand even. He probably memorized it, though. So, you know, it's just in his mind. He's thinking about it. He's looking, and he's thinking, and he's reflecting, and he's wondering, and he's watching, and he's thinking. He's looking at the stars, and he's thinking. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals. This is Genesis 1. Over all the creatures that move, move along the ground. So and he's looking up at the moon. He's saying, "So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Oh, there's Jupiter. No, he didn't know it was Jupiter. There's a bright star. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This is the story that he's holding as he's looking up at the heavens that God made. And do you see how that story, the Genesis story, the creation of male and female who are then given this profound responsibility to rule over a portion of God's creation, the part that's here on earth, with a particular focus on the animals and the birds and the fish, they're given this kind of rulership, caretaking responsibility and this story, as he reflects on that, creates a wonder in him and an awe in him, some sort of insight in him to respond. It's like the psalmist sees Yahweh's glory through creation's story. And what's being ripped up here and down here isn't just some sort of vague, how did it happen? We don't know. Where did it come from? What do we do? It's no, no, we've got a story that sets us in place that makes sense of the world around us, that there's a God who created the world who has entered into relationship with us. Think of it from the psalmist's point of view. A faithful Jewish person, probably a man, a worship leader of some kind, how they collected these over the many years is a a story that scholarship gets into. But what we have is this gathered, beautiful playlist of God's people. But the psalmist here in Psalm 8 He's reflecting on the world from the position of someone who knows that God created it. The world isn't meant to be worshipped. God is meant to be worshipped because he created the world. But this God didn't remain unknown. This God entered into relationship with our family and made promises to our family that through our family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And though it looked grim for hundreds of years, God then rescued us out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt. God brought us into the wilderness and established a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. He showed us how to live in relationship with him. And that God brought us through that wilderness, though it took a lot longer than we expected. He took us through the wilderness and into like a second Eden, into this land of Canaan, which God then commissioned us again to care for his land, the land over which He is majestic. His name is proclaimed. And we now live as his covenant stewards, as the creator's caring rulers. And he's sitting here thinking about this story, looking at the stars and thinking, how incredible is that? It's blowing his mind that God, who created the world, would enter into relationship with us, but not only into a vague kind of relationship, would actually commission us, would, in his words, crown us with glory and honor and set everything under our feet. This is incredible. Do you, do you feel it a little bit? Like this is, this is awe-inspiring for him. And for us. And the only way he could have had that response is because he knows the story he's part of. He understands the covenant that God has made. He knows deep down the fact that humans were created in God's own image, commissioned as a kind of mediatorial creature between the creator and the rest of creation. That's what Genesis one is about, right? Humans are created, in Genesis 2, humans are created from the dust of the ground, but God breathes into them his breath and they become living souls. So that humans live in this kind of middle relationship where they're from the dust of the ground and yet they're imbued with the image of God. So they're able to be part of creation and offer creation's articulate praise back to God and care for creation in in their work. So they're reflecting back to God, but also they can turn around and, Their actions in relationship to creation are revealing the character and goodness of God. That's why God created human beings to be in this mediatorial relationship. Human images reflecting God's glory and reflecting creation's praise. And so you can see how the Genesis scroll, in that sense, in this story, becomes the interpretive lens through which this psalmist, this poet, is reflecting And enabling him to worship God properly, but also to work himself properly, if I can put it that way. Not just worship, but work. To understand his place, understand what it means to be a human who's aligned with the truth of who God is, but also the truth of who we are so that we can live in this right relationship with God and in righteousness with the world. And so our challenge, of course, is to continue to stand in that same tradition. To be a people who read the world, who see creation, who engage as we think and as we reflect, as we wonder, but sometimes as we are horrified with what we see, that we engage that through the lens of God's revealed story. What he has given to us through his scripture, what is revealed to us through Jesus. That we are given this task to continue to reflect God's character to the world and creation's praise back to God through the story that he's given to us. It's no wonder that at the end of this psalm, when he, reflecting on that, bursts again into his chorus, Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that you would do this, that you would make this world, and that you'd place us in such a position of honor, of responsibility. It's awe-inspiring but maybe somewhat terrifying too when you realize this is what God has called us to do. What do we make of this now? There's uh, two things I think are clear. First, we are made to worship. I think this psalm says this, I think the whole of scripture say this that as human images we reflect creation's praise back to God. In other words, we give words, we make articulate, we honor and glorify God with the very work of our hands. We we extend creation's potentiality through the mandate that God has given us. We we create new things under God as expressions of 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 Beauty and goodness, but of God's character and love. This is a profound responsibility, but a beautiful way that we are made to worship when we express God's goodness and care and character through the very work of our hands, the very worship of our lives, the very way that we seek relationship and seek to honor Him. We were made for that. There's something ingrained within us as humans to be responsive. We were made to worship. And second, we were made to work. I don't mean a job. This is the kind of work that God has created us for that doesn't have to do with clocking in and clocking out and has nothing to do with being retired or unemployed. This is the work that God has given to us as his human images to reflect God's care to the rest of the world through our very way of being together, reflecting his loving rule. And in this psalm and in Genesis, there's a particular responsibility given to the humans to steward and care for the animals, which is interesting to me, I think. I, 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 you know, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, and I don't know why he adds all that swim the paths of the seas. I'm like, what else is he talking about? There's some stuff down there that's weird and scary, and I'm not sure how we're responsible for it, but we are. And, and so, th- th- but this is this constant reflection. We've got a role to play in the flourishing of creation. That we were made for a special work. And it's not just birds and fish and, 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 and uh, you know, cows in the field, but a sense in which God has given the world under human responsibility. He, he looks to us and he expects our action to bring about better things, greater things good things. In other words, if we were made to worship and that's about us being a people of response, he's created us clearly also as a people of responsibility. He expects it from us. That's what humans were made for. Genesis 1 is super clear about that. That the world God created has been put under human care. God expects us to care for it. In fact, we'll be accountable for that. And so there's there's this reflection here in this psalm made to worship but also made to work where we recognize that human identity to be human is something that's both humbling and honoring did you notice that i mean it's incredibly humbling that the god of the heavens and the earth would give us that responsibility but it's also incredibly honoring a little lower than the angels did you do you walk around thinking that do you look yourself in the mirror and think i'm crowned with glory and honor (laughs) <laughs> do you look at your spouse in the morning and say that? <clears throat> Never mind. But even as we hear that, the humility and the honor that human beings are given, the words of the psalm, incredibly uplifting. And yet when we hear it, we instantly realize that we do have a problem, don't we? Because as human beings... We aren't that humble and we aren't that honorable. And both our response to God and our responsibility for his creation is something that we have been, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Terrible at? Missed? Placed? so misguided. We recognize that in our own lives. We recognize that historically. We recognize that when we look around us, it's like, oh man, God, you did this. You called us to this. You say this, and wow, did we ever botch it up. What do I do now? What do we do now? And there can even be a sense when we read this now and we think, well, God, I'm not sure that worked very well. The human story is not one of glory. It's gorier than that. It's awful. It's violent. We've exploited the world that God has given to us. And we usually are damaging each other in the process. So we hear the words of the psalm we think, whoa, 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 what do we do now? If we were made to worship, that didn't go very well. If we were made to work, oh man, can we have a do-over? <laughs> can we start over? But Psalm 8 also holds for us the key to something else, doesn't it? Many of the Psalms are messianic. Probably all of them, actually. But Psalm 8, no less. Because while Psalm 8 holds up the truth of who God made us to be as humans, and we know our frailty, it ultimately points forward to the coming of Jesus, the truest human being, who both humbled himself and yet was exalted to the highest place. But also through his becoming part of us and one of us, he actually ended up doing and accomplishing the things that we never could. He responded perfectly to the Father with the worship that you and I were never able to muster up. And as the true human being, he's able to exercise perfect, loving, caring authority over the world And in fact, he's come to set it right again. And so Psalm 8 honors us, yes. But at that moment where we feel kind of despairing, we're reminded that Jesus has come. The writer of the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews later in the New Testament, this is what he was reflecting on in Hebrews chapter 2. He quotes from Psalm 8, but watch what he does. Quoting from Psalm 8, this is from Hebrews chapter 2, starting the middle way through verse 6. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, and the Son of Man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. So he's quoting Psalm 8, and now he goes on to say something. He says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that was not subject to them. We're responsible for everything. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. No kidding. Life's a mess. And I love this line. This is what we hold on to. So yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but, verse nine, Hebrews two, but, we do see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste Death for everyone. And Hebrews 2 goes on to just make a big deal about that, that he became flesh and blood, became brothers and sisters with us so that he could defeat the power of death and those who were held in the fear of the power of death. And all of a sudden, he's just on and on. It's amazing. You can read it. But here at this moment in Hebrews, there's this recognition that, yes, God, you created humans in your image, little lower than the angels. You set everything to be ruled under them and they messed it up. We don't see it working. We don't see everything subject to them. We don't see a world that is in harmony with its creator. We don't see human beings reflecting your goodness the way that they were designed to. We don't see that. But we do see Jesus. He who became human. I mean, when he quotes, he made a little more than the angels for a little while. That's, yeah, he became one of us. But now crowned with glory and honor, he died he rose. He ascended to the throne of the Father. He sits, to quote another passage in First Corinthians 15, and waits until all his enemies are put under his feet. Psalm 110, and ten. First Corinthians 5, 15. It's all connected to the same story of a human being on the throne that they were meant to occupy, but that human being being Jesus, the Messiah. That Jesus sets it right. We don't see things going right yet, but we do see Jesus. And he's the one who restores us. He's the one who came to rule over creation. He's the one who worships the Father rightly and rules righteously, who does it on our behalf and then calls us by his Holy Spirit to join him in that, to be conformed to his image, to in our relationships, in our work, in our worship, by the work of the Holy Spirit within us to more and more image the true human Jesus so that we can worship rightly and work righteously as we follow him. Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's where the psalm leads us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to become one of us, made a little lower than the angels, which is an astonishing thought, not just for us, it's more astonishing that you would become one of us, to restore us, to rule for us, the true human being, the true son of God. You are the majestic one over all the earth and we give glory and praise to you. Lord Jesus, if we consider this Psalm 8, we know that we were made to worship you. Would you lead us in that by your spirit? Jesus, lead us to worship as we were created to worship. Not just as we gather, but as we are working throughout the week, as we are engaging in the world and the relationships and the places that you've called us to express your love and your care. Will we do that out of response to you as worshipers. But also, Lord Jesus, under your authority, and as we look to you, would you help us also to become more response-able, responsible, to reflect your goodness to the world. Yes, that includes the care of birds and fish and animals and people and neighborhoods workplaces, schools. Reflecting your goodness and your character and your love in the way that we serve, in the way that we love. You made us to worship, but you made us to work. And so would we be inspired by this psalm today to do just that in your power and in your strength. Amen. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.